change and shift and, and, and look at. And what I realized in the midst of that is that I hadn't asked some of these questions internally in my own heart first. And then as I asked those questions and as Shayla and I drove home from Saskatoon and, and kind of dialogued about this, and then we had our AGC local area meeting for the Southern Alberta, and we continued this dialogue and continued to go on. And what I realized is that I wanted to be very clear about reframing our ecclesiology. So all, all that means is what is the church and why do we exist? What is the purpose of believers? Why do we gather together? Why is it important? And so we started last week with the philosophical understanding of what is church. And we looked at it from two kind of aspects. The first is that church is the global, all those in the world who declare Jesus as their Lord. That we're all connected. And and in Banff here, we have this neat opportunity of welcoming and connecting with people from all over the world, literally every Sunday. And, and so that's a wonderful encouragement. And there's something unique about those of you that I met this morning that I've never met before. And who knows, might not meet you ever again. And yet there's something that connects us. And we're family because of that. And so you can walk into a church and you can know that you're loved and you're cared for because you're part of the body of Christ. And that's, that's awesome and a, and a wonderfully unique thing. But the scripture also focuses a great deal of time, which we looked at last week and we're going to continue to look at, about the local expression of that church. So specifically for our context here, Banff Park Church, or if you're visiting, the church where you have uh, been attending wherever you are living. And so as we talked about this what is church? Then there's this generic question of why church? And so we've broken this down into many different categories. So today, do we have a slide for today? I forget. I never have slides. So this is, this is new for me. Uh, today is why together? Why does it matter that we gather together? We looked at what is church. Now we want to deal with the idea of why And so we're going to deal with why together, and then in the coming weeks, we're going to ask questions like, why membership? Why baptism? Why communion? Why serve? There's a whole bunch more that I can't think of right now off the top of my head. We're going to look at all those things because I'm convinced that as we read through Scripture, that you will see as well that God has a very specific mission for the church. And we talked about this last week. What is our mission? To love God and love people. We've been gifted the Holy Spirit so that we can do that in an effective way. And this morning, we're going to talk predominantly about why I need you to do that and why you need me and why we need together, why we can't do that isolated on our own. So, but before we do that, let me just redefine what is church. This was from Mark Dever, and he says this, a local church is a body of people that are marked out by the fruit of God's spirit as holy and loving. In other words, the church consists of people who have made Jesus Christ Lord by bowing their knee to Christ and surrendering their whole lives to him. And then we pursue spiritual growth in Christ-likeness together. And so at the end of last week, I asked you a question that came. It was a quote from Matt Chandler where he said, it was more of a statement. He said, if Jesus isn't your Lord, then Jesus isn't your Savior. And that really stuck out to me and it kept coming back to me over and over last week and over and over this week. And I had a few conversations with several of you who asked some of those internal questions as well, saying things like, I I say he's my Lord, but when I evaluate my heart and my life, is he actually my Lord? 
or is he just kind of important to me? And when we read through Scripture, what we're going to find here this morning is that not only is church vitally important for, for me, but church is vitally important for us. And God has designed church in a very specific way. And we're going to bounce around all over Scripture. So you can open to Hebrews chapter 12. And while you're flipping there, let me uh, just keep going with this. I'm going to have to follow my notes way more than normal today. Because otherwise we're going to be here for a couple of hours. What? What was that, Val? That's okay. That's okay. That's the ADD in me. I heard that. And then... Jesus should be our Lord. So practically, what does that mean? Just before we get to Hebrews 12. Practically what that means, it doesn't mean that I can no longer have any hobbies or any activities that I like or any extracurricular things that I do. What it means is that all of those other things and things like my work, my family, uh, my friendships, all of those things, all of them filter under this. Jesus is most important. But he's not just isolatedly most important and then dichotomized into here's my spiritual life and then here's the rest of my life. Is the rest of my life comes underneath the lordship of Jesus. So my friendships, my relationships with my family are all influenced by the fact that I claim Jesus is Lord. My work. This is why we're excited about the gospel and symposium, uh, vocation and symposium coming up. is because we want to reimagine your career, your work. Maybe you're retired. Jim is actually going to talk to us about that retirement. These types of areas in our life, how can we reimagine them with gospel-centered meaning so that whether I'm a lawyer or whether I'm a bank teller or whether I'm a carpenter or whether I'm a nurse or whatever else might it be, that we filter that under what does God want me to do with my vocation? How does he want me to live? How am I supposed to influence my coworkers? So Hebrews 12, 1 to 3 says this. I, I quoted this a couple of weeks ago, but I want to read it again because I want to point something out to us. It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before us endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We are on a race together. And where do we put our focus? Where do we put our effort? We put it on Jesus, but it says here, in verse 1, and this is something that I've alluded to this, we've probably talked about this before many times, but I just want to highlight it again for us, is the writer to the Hebrews notes two things which take our focus off of Jesus and onto the external things. One of them is sin. That's just plainly obvious. How are we expecting to live in a healthy, uh, good relationship with God if we are living in unrepentant sin and we're unwilling to surrender our lives to him? That's maybe the more obvious one. But notice what it says here. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So in other words, those extracurriculars, those hobbies, those activities, those things that we love to do and spend a lot of time doing them. What he's arguing for us here is that those, even if they're good things, can weigh us down and can distract us from what our true mission and calling is. And I think it doesn't take any of us any amount of time to think about that and go, yeah, there are things that I get way too focused on at the cost of everything else. 
specifically maybe at the cost of my spiritual life. If we can spend hours and hours on our entertainment and our leisure, but not more than five minutes in the Word of God, how do we expect to grow? What are we saying to God? Now, again, don't hear me saying this means you can't spend time doing those activities. But how we do them and why we do them starts to filter through our thinking and our thought process, and it ends up going like this. Is this priority for me or is it not? And I used a silly example, I think last week, about me watching hockey and how that had taken up too big a piece of my heart. Where if the Leafs lost, which is every year in the first round. Oh, sorry, I did it again. When they, when they lose, if they lose, all of a sudden I would find myself being very aggressive, probably angry. When someone would talk to me, I would be short and snappy with them. And I had to look at this and I had to go, how much does this occupy in my heart and what is it doing? Is it taking me towards Jesus or is it taking me further away from Jesus? And you you can fill in the blank with whatever your extracurricular thing is. Um, We could use all kinds of examples. I'm not going to because I don't want you to think that I was looking at your lives this week or that you were looking at my life this week. Why? Why? Why do we spend the time doing these things? And, and do we look at this and say, I actually have a mission. My mission is to love God and to love people. And everything else is filtered through that. And so God, would you give me more of you and less of the things that, that I want to do? Actually, I think I should rephrase that. Give me less desire to do things that don't matter. Right? I think that would be our prayer. Is God, would you focus us on what truly matters? I remember speaking at Bible camps, uh, and every year, there'd be a question and answer, or I should say every week that I spoke, there'd be a question and answer session where a bunch of kids would come in, and they would ask some questions. And one of the questions that they asked is, is generically speaking, would be, is it a sin to, and then fill in the blank. And I would answer those questions uh, for a long time, and then what I started to realize is that actually wasn't the question they were asking. Really, the question they were asking was, I don't have to give this up, do I? And I don't, I don't have the wisdom to tell you what you need to give up, but what I do know is that we should go to the Father and we should say, God, does this occupy too much of my heart? And do I need to give it up? Do I need to move on to other things? Are my leisure activities, uh, my quest for, for self-gratification in whatever area it is, is that needing to be less than are you needing to be more? And I think even hypothetically, we can say that's probably true of all of us almost every day. So how do we do that? How do we deal with it? Well, the problem is not the activity. The problem is our heart. And my argument for this morning is going to be that without together, that difficulty is that much more. If I don't have Christian brothers and sisters to be in fellowship with, to be in service with, and to remind me of the importance and the good of serving Jesus, it can be very easy for me to withdraw into my own self, and all of a sudden, this is a true story, as a youth pastor, I was up till 4.30 in the morning playing Guitar Hero, going, oh, what just happened to my whole day and evening and night? Because my mind got fixed going, I'm by myself, I can just do whatever I want. And so together is going to be very, very important. In our world, and by that I mean 
kind of Canada specifically, but the West more generally speaking, there are many people, as according to Barna Research here, who claim to be Christians and to follow Jesus, but no longer see any need to attend church. The various reasons for this, I'm not going to go through because it's just way too long of a list. But what I want to do is ask this question, uh, generically speaking, from the Bible. This is what we talked about last week. All the answers that we're going to find in our ecclesiology is found in Scripture. And so we're going to look at this question. Is can I be a Christian and be isolated into my own self where I think that church is not necessary for a healthy relationship with Jesus? I think you know where we're going, but... We'll read through scripture to figure out what it says. So let's, let's flip over uh, to the book of Acts now. And while you're flipping there, let me just give you a little bit of context. So in Acts chapter 1, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit, specifically to his apostles, but more broadly than that. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is then poured out upon us. And actually, you know, interesting side note, what is today in the church calendar? Yeah, it's Pentecost Sunday. Right? So we celebrate today that the Holy Spirit was given on this day in the church. Right? So the Holy Spirit gives, is given to each one. And in chapter 2, verse 1, it actually says it this way. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were what? All together in one place. You may think I'm like really reading into things here. But we're going to see as we go through here. I, I hope you you see a pattern emerging. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and then we read Peter's uh, sermon, and Peter preaches about needing to repent and turn towards Jesus. Uh, And you see the response in verse 37 of chapter 2. It says this, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone, whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added to that day about 3,000 souls. And then in these next verses, which we're going to read in just a second here, this is where this, this church understanding erupted and became an actual entity, something that we could quantify, something that we could look at, and we should look at and say, God, how do you want the church to operate? What should we be doing as the church? And so we're going to look at that. But There's just a couple of things that are significant here. I think the fact that they were all gathered together in one place is important. Verse 41 shows that about 3,000 people came to faith that day, and the wording says they there were added. Luke notes this throughout the book of Acts. He constantly is noting numbers, and I think it's for a very specific reason. I think it's because that while the global church is growing like crazy for Luke, who is very detailed, if you read the Gospel of Luke and and Acts, you'll see this, he he viewed things very differently. He also understood that there was a process of recording and keeping track of those who came to faith so that they could be together and understand who was involved in that movement. 
We're going to talk way more specifically about that when we ask the question, why membership? But this pattern emerges over and over and in the writings of Paul as well. So the church is founded, and here's what we read, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There's all kinds of really interesting stuff in in those verses, but for sake of time, I'm just going to focus on a few things. The people that heard the message responded, and they responded very simply by doing this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And then, uh, verse 44, and all who believed were what? Together. And had all things in common. They sold their possessions and belongings, distributed to those who had need. And then day by day, attending the temple, what? Together. And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So often people use these verses to, to point out that house church was, the, was God's intent for church, that it was meant to be small groups of people together. I think the text actually argues against that. I think it says there's both. They attended the temple together. In groups, in large groups, they came and gathered in one location to celebrate the work that Christ had done and to give glory to God. And then they went to each other's homes and they broke bread. It's it's both and. So should we have small groups in our church? A hundred percent. There's no argument about that. But should we only do small groups? I think the text is arguing very differently than that. We'll continue to, to look at this. As persecution grew out, so I'm giving you a little bit of history here now. As persecution grew out because Christianity exploded and, uh, and the religious leaders and those in power were not happy about this. And so persecution broke out uh, against them. And so many had to flee and they all of a sudden started being in these tiny little places and, and, and little kind of house churches kind of underground as it were so that people didn't disrupt their meetings. However, what, if you follow the narrative of Acts, what you read is that that is a negative thing. Now, God used it for his good, absolutely, but it was a result of persecution broke out, and so they had to do this. This wasn't the intended model. And in fact, uh, I just read a book for seminary, that, well, a class in January that I, I wasn't able to attend, but it was all about world evangelism. And there were many interviews, and I'm going to read a little bit here very specifically so that I don't get this wrong, but there were many people who were interviewed that said things like this, we're shocked that in the West people don't gather together even though they're free to do so. We're shocked that they're so individualistic and don't gather. The writers of these articles couldn't grasp or understand how Having 
the freedom to worship together was not so important that people wouldn't do it every single day, let alone once a week. When you talk to anybody in the underground church in other parts of the world where it is illegal to be Christian, their, their goal, their, their desire, every week as they go and as they gather, and I, I read about how a group of 15 people had to show up over the course of three hours so that they didn't draw suspicion before they even started their service together. They couldn't sing out loud because they were worried that their neighbors would hear them and report them. And so somebody played a guitar, played a piano, and everyone just kind of hummed quietly together kind of sounds like some of the things that we had to do when COVID started. And they, are, they were arguing, or, or, or I shouldn't say they were arguing, they were shocked and almost appalled at the fact that they, Christians here wouldn't rush out to gather together to proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior. I've said this over and over in the last number of months, but we're a byproduct of our culture. And one of the big implications of our culture is individualism. We do things on our own. And this is very unique to affluent areas of Christianity. As I said, other parts in the world, they desire to get together even if they can't. In our parts, we go, I'd rather stay at home and and stay in my pajamas and maybe even stay in bed. Because it's convenient. We've elevated convenience in our culture just about above everything else, haven't we? Now, lots of good has come from that. So don't hear me trying to just say that our culture is the worst culture ever. That's not the point. Every culture has had things that are benefits and good technological advancements, but there's also been some difficulties and challenges that have come with that. Social media is the greatest example of that. It's awesome to be able to stay connected with people all over the world. It's also statistically caused so much loneliness and depression and isolation, even though it's very, in its very title is social. And yet it's caused the opposite in so many people's lives. We've bought into an idea of a kind of a consumer mentality on everything where we think that we have the right to get this or we should have this or if it wasn't to my standard or my quality, I shouldn't have to pay for it. And again, I'm not trying to argue philosophically about those things. I'm just acknowledging that they exist in our culture and that we're being shaped by them. And so sometimes we start to view church in that way. I received one email uh, during COVID where somebody said, and again, part good, part bad. The good part was thank you that we were able to watch online and still stay connected. That was wonderful, but it was followed with, it was almost like being there. And I thought if it was almost like being together when you were at home in your pajamas, we're probably not doing it right. And that's not meant as condemning. I was so thankful that we were able to gather in a sense virtually that we have Zoom Bible studies, that we were able to see some people, that all those things were wonderful, but they were never meant to be long-term, never meant to replace the Sunday gathering together. We're going to talk about the whys behind that a little more. And so in the midst of what these challenges were happening with COVID and how we were adapting to them, we were focusing on some of the positives, which was really good, but myself specifically was not focusing on what are going to become the patterns and the habits over, well, who knew it was going to be two, two and a half years? It doesn't take long for bad habits to develop, right? Petra is living in our house right now, and she's seeing we're trying to eat healthy so bad. It's so hard. Right? Like it's so hard. Like it's easy to just walk to Shell or to Husky or, or order something or have it delivered at pretty much any time you want. Convenience. This 
reality of how we're affected by it is something we need to think about in the church as well. We're a byproduct of the culture in which we found ourselves. And so we just need to understand that, be aware of that, and then figure out what are we going to do about it. Uh, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, the writer warns this way. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. He's literally saying, as Christ's return is coming, we just studied through Daniel for five months. We know Christ's return is coming. We know it's soon, and I don't really know how to quantify that soon, but we know it could be any moment. And he's literally writing that the more that that day approaches, the more difficult life is going to be, the more persecution is going to come upon you as Christians. If you've read Daniel Revelation, you see that. And so he's arguing, don't, don't just stop meeting together thinking that that day will come, but meet together because you will need each other as that day draws closer. Maybe we can say it this way. If you've ever shown up to do a service project and there's you know, 10 or 12 people that you're serving with, you'll find it's a lot more meaningful. You'll get a lot more joy out of it than if you just go and do something on your own. We're created to be in community. That doesn't mean I'm saying you shouldn't go and do service on your own. Absolutely you should be, but we should understand that doing it together is far more effective than doing it on our own. We need to be reminded, and Daniel did this over the last five months to us, we need to be reminded that in our culture, Christians' rights and freedoms are going to be taken away. It's happened in every culture that's ever lived. There's cycles of it, and sometimes we come out and there's a a time of revival, but it always comes back. Persecution is inevitable, and the majority of us sitting in this room, if, if you're from Canada especially, is we don't even know what persecution means, not really. We've lived in the most free time spiritually that that has existed. And so we need to be aware that it's going to get messy, it's going to get worse, and literally, I need you, you need me, and we need together because if we're isolated and on our own, it's very easy to fall into depression and struggle, apathy. Why bother? Why attend church? What difference does it make? I would argue it makes all the difference in the world. In Paul's letter to the first Corinthians, he uses this example, and this is probably not new to any of you, but you can flip to first Corinthians 12. He uses the example of a human body to talk about the church. And, And while he's talking specifically about spiritual gifts within the church, the whole point of it is serving one another. And it says this, and so this is a first Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The body does not consist of one member, but of many. The foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. 
If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the, to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may be the, sorry, that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. When we talk about membership, we'll probably get back to this text. But what you can see here is Paul's giving this illustration of a very complex organism that many parts are required for it to function. And maybe you've had this experience um, where you did something very small to hurt a little tiny part of your body that ruined everything. Right? It's very complex. Yesterday, Shayla and I were installing a, a, a sliding glass door because one of them had broken and I hurt my thumb somehow, I don't even know, and it hurts so bad just to play guitar, right? Like, just one little thing, didn't think of it. I broke my thumb once, and I was the, the dish pit person at school, and so every plate that I grabbed to go dry, well, have you ever tried to grab something with a thumb that doesn't work? I broke a lot of plates that day, got kicked out. That was part of the plan. No, I'm just kidding. That wasn't part of my plan. Um, but these little things, these little parts of our body have huge impact on everything else. And perhaps you know this more so ever than if you have suffered from something like vertigo. Where some little inner ear thing goes funny and you can't even stand up. The same is true spiritually. That's the argument that Paul is trying to make here. He's trying to say, you, you Christian, you cannot do it on your own. You're not created to do it on your own. You're created as individual members of a larger organism and that you are indispensable one from each other. We're going to discuss some of those specifics more so in the coming weeks. But I need you and you need me and we need together or we're not going to accomplish the mission that Christ has given us to accomplish. There's a book John Piper wrote called This Momentary Marriage, and it talks all about marriage meaning to represent Christ's uh, covenant relationship with the church, this marriage. So your marriage is meant to illustrate your love of Christ to the world around you. And he argues that if you isolate yourself from the body, now I'm not using his words, I'm using the vernacular that we're talking about here, but if you isolate yourself from the body, then how will you ever have a good and healthy marriage? If you just gathered once every month, with your spouse and went, yeah, it's a pretty good month. How was your month? What kind of relationship would you have? I think we've lost sight of what the New Testament teaches us about church and we've thought because of our cultural context, we've thought so individually about, I don't need the church to spiritually grow. I just need to love Jesus. And my argument is you need to love Jesus to be saved so that you would understand that you need one another to serve one another. Just think of it from a logical context. As 1 Corinthians, we, I preached through this a couple years ago, but 1 Corinthians, that church in Corinth was a mess. 
all kinds of problems. There was discipline needed. There was false teaching that needed to be corrected. There were people that were gossiping. There were, there's just all kinds of messy things. And don't you think if it was a good idea to do church on your own, Paul just would have been like, you know what? It's not really worth all this correcting. Why don't you just go in little groups of three and just go in and work together and then the three of you and not worry about the broader picture? Rather, he actually calls on the members of that church to gather together because someone was sleeping with his mother-in-law and saying, it's okay, God will forgive me. And they're saying, you can't honor Christ and live this way. And Paul says, you have to discipline the member. Now, the goal of that was that he would see his error and come back to faith. The goal wasn't get him out because we don't like him. Goodness, if the goal was get him out, we don't like him, there would be nobody in church. Like, like if you read through the New Testament churches, especially like something like Ephesians, unity was so crucial because you had different ethnicities merging together that saw the world differently. Some that thought that Christianity should only be for Jews and some who said, no, this is very clearly for Gentiles. And they argued all the time. And Paul, every one of his letters except Philippians was written to correct bad teaching, bad doctrine, and unify people together. Why would he go through all that effort if he could have just said, why don't you just go off in your little groups of three? That'll work just fine. Because that's not what represents Christ's kingdom to the world. The greatest thing that we can do from an action standpoint for our community is show our community we're a, a mixed bag of people with different opinions, with different preferences, with different styles, and yet we gather together and we put all our differences aside because we love Jesus Christ and we want to serve him, not myself. And when we do that together, the world looks at that and goes, why would you do that? Why, would, why don't you just like start your own church with your own people? Well, there's, a, there's a joke that if you were going to start your own church, uh, you would have to go to a desert island and there, or uh, sorry, a uh, yeah, Desert Island, that's right. Sorry, brain got stuck there. And, and so one of the books that I read, he talks about this, that if you're on the desert island uh, and somebody came to rescue you and you were going to show them around your island, you would walk around and you would be like, so here's where I eat and, and, and here's, you know, the various things. Oh, and that, that, was, that was my first church over there. And then now that's my second church. Even if you're the only one, you would start two churches because we can't even get along with ourselves was his point. How often that is the case but to, to, to come together, to look at our differences and to say, we're not trying to pretend that everyone's the same. In fact, I think it's important that we celebrate those differences. But then we go, look, this represents Christ because we will put aside all these differences. We'll be, we will be united in purpose and mission no matter what because that's what glorifies God. And I think when we go, it's not worth it. The church is too messy. People's lives are too messy. I'm just gonna do it on my own. How does that glorify God? How does that say to the world, serving Jesus is worth it? How does it show that we were meant to be in community? In Titus, I don't have this on the screen for you, but in Titus, Paul argues with them there and he says, older women, you need to teach the younger women what it means to follow Jesus. Older men, you need to teach the younger men what it means to follow Jesus. How do we do that by ourselves? If, if we, as the older, more mature, I use that term very loosely here, but if we think of it that way and we go, oh, I'm just going to do this on my own, we're actually disobeying what Scripture has taught us to do. So let me say it this way. 
Matthew 19, or Matthew 28, 19, and 20, we are told to do what? Go into the world and make what? And so if you are not actively attempting to disciple somebody, are you a follower of Jesus? Now, I'm not trying to be critical or condemning by any means. I'm trying to take very seriously what the Word of God teaches us and ask us a question that maybe we're too afraid to ask very often, and that is, do I actually love Jesus? Is he actually my Lord? Or is he just one important thing among many other important things? That doesn't mean that you'll have 17 people that you're constantly discipling all the time, and it doesn't mean that that discipleship journey will always be smooth and and people will come to faith and they'll grow and they'll mature. Sometimes you'll spend a great deal amount of effort trying to disciple somebody where their life completely falls apart. So don't try and think end goal is, is all these mature people. The end goal is to be faithful to the commission that Jesus has given us. I want to love people. I want to love God first. I want to love people second. I want to go out into the world. I want to make disciples and I want to baptize them and I want to teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. That's the great commission given not to me, not to 11 disciples. It's given to everyone. It's given to anyone who follows Jesus, anyone who says that Jesus is Lord. And so what we read when we look through the New Testament is when the church begins in Acts chapter 2 all the way to the finishing pages of Scripture is it's messy, it's difficult, it's painful, and yet there is a plea for unity that we would gather and that we would love each other so that the world would know who we are, what we represent, and what the purpose of our life is. I want to read one more passage. I I know we're a little over time here, but if you go to 1 Peter. Chapter 5 of of 1 Peter. Peter looks at this church, or this group of churches, I should say, And he gives both responsibility to the leadership of the church and to the individual members of it. Chapter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There's all kinds of stuff in there. You see, one is that he's calling the elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So again, there's an expectation that we know who the flock is that is among us that we are responsible for. The second thing is we see not under compulsion, not for shameful gain, not domineering. Now, I understand that many people in the world have had very corrupt leaders do exactly that. But why would that ever indicate to us that that means we should quit church in general? The argument here is that that means you should quit that church (laughs) and go find people who want to follow Jesus together. 
In fact, it says to the congregation, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. We don't like that word. We, we just finished uh, some premarital counseling with Phil and Jenna, and we talked a lot about Ephesians 5 and this idea of, of putting yourself in sub, subjugation. No, that's not the right word. Submission, thank you to whoever said that, to submission to one another, but we don't like that because that means, oh, but this person now is in control of me, and it's not about control. It's about coming together and my needs are not more important than your needs. In fact, I want to elevate your needs above my own. And by so doing, show that I value Jesus. In so doing, show that I care more about you than about me, which sounds very similar to a passage that we already read and many other passages where Jesus in Philippians did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to, but made himself nothing for our sake. And so it says, submit one to another. Submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. Uh, again, in Hebrews thirteen seven, the writer says it this way. Obey your leaders and submit to them for their keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. In other words, he's saying, figure out a way to get along. Because those that God's put in leadership over you, they have to give an account to me. And so they might not do it great all the time, but work with them on it, work together on it. And, and I think you all know this. If you own a business and you have a partner in your business, you know this very well. Your ideas are not always the best ideas. Sometimes they have some good ideas. And sometimes you have to compromise on those things for the sake of unity, for the sake of what is the best in the case, what's the best case scenario for the business? Well, that same principle exists within the church. We want to be obedient to Christ, to what scripture says, and we want to do it in a way that honors every member that is here. And I don't mean that in the sense of like, if you've signed a membership covenant, though we're going to talk about that. And I think there's value to that. But if you are part of a local church, then you are part of a family that has been given a mission to go and to do. So why do you do it together? Because the scripture tells you to. And if we're told to go and to make disciples and baptize them and teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded, then we might want to teach them everything Jesus commanded. That means we have to put ourselves under under submission to the word of God to say, even though culture says it should be this way, the Bible says it should be this way, and so we're going to submit here. And we're going to live this way. Now, I understand this is a very aggressive sermon, and I apologize for that. The goal is not to try and convince you that we need to have more people in our chairs. That's, I couldn't care less about that. The goal is that if we claim to be followers of Jesus, that we're committed one to another, that we want to serve each other, that we want to love each other, that we want to declare to the world around us, there's something far more important than my own desires, my own needs, and that's serving Jesus. And I want to take so very seriously that command. And so let me say it this way. Watching services online was for a time and a season, and there'll be moments where you're at home sick and you're so glad that you get to watch a service and be part of it in some way. And so that's great, but it's never meant to replace the gathering of the saints. And so if you haven't, if you're watching at home or if you're watching later on in the week, 
if you can be back at church and you've chosen not to, I, I just want to ask you to consider what biblical base you have for that. Why have you made that decision? Not only is, I think, it unhealthy for you, but I also think it's unhealthy for us, the body. Because if we're walking around on one leg because one leg's at home, we're not running at an efficient capacity, and we need you. And so I would encourage you to do that. If you're watching this but not part of the Banff Park Church, we're happy that you want to tune in and hear what we're teaching and, and, and what we're trying to do and how we're trying to follow Christ. But please, oh please, let this only be supplemental to the church that you should be connected with. And so if you've joined us throughout COVID, but you live in another town or another place, please find a local church that you can invest in, where you can serve and where you can love and where you can care for your community effectively. And by all means, if you want to catch our service on Sunday afternoon, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we would love for that because we think, we think the Bible's true and we want to declare it as broadly as we possibly can. But we think there's a context in which that needs to be done. We are the body. We are called to work together for one common good, that Christ would be exalted. So let's do that together in these coming weeks. And as we ask all these other why questions, let's search for answers that we find in the Bible. I want to pray and close this time, and then I'm going to invite the guys up to distribute communion. And again, we're going to ask the question of why communion. I was going to try and fit that into this morning, but obviously that was never going to happen. But we're going to ask the question of why do we do communion? What does it signify? And so we'll do that next month. But I just want us as we consider these things is, is imagine Jesus with his disciples in this last supper, knowing full well that one of them is going to betray him. Knowing that he's going to be abandoned by the disciples for, for a season that they're going to run, that they're going to hide. And yet he went, the church is my bride and I will sacrifice my life even for as messy as these people are. What a beautiful thought. Let's pray. God, we are so humbled and amazed by the fact that you want to use broken people like us to further the gospel. You have given us mission that we love you, that we love people, and that we go disciple others, that we baptize them, and that we teach them to obey everything you have commanded. God, would you help us to reframe everything in our life based around that, so that even in our times of leisure where we go out and, and participate in hobbies and activities, that you are on our mind and that we're searching for ways in which we can love you and love others. God, would you renew in us a passion and a desire to gather together to serve one another and to love one another so that the world around us, the communities here in the Bow Valley, that they see a very imperfect group of people loving each other perfectly through the Holy Spirit. So that they would see it and they would go, that's what I need because it comes from you. God, as we transition here into a time of communion, we are so grateful that you did not give up on us. Even though you knew how messy that road would be. 
thank you that you sent Jesus and that Jesus went willingly to the cross that we might find forgiveness, that we might find salvation, but that we also might find a purpose and a meaning that together we can exalt your name, we can make you known. And so God, help us to live in your example to not give up on one another, but to love and to care for each other the way that you love and care for us. God, be with us in these next few moments as we consider what Scripture has to say about communion. Amen. If you guys want to just come up and we'll just flip back to 1 Corinthians and read these verses and look at our hearts here. So this is 1 Corinthians 11. Paul wrote this starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body, of the, sorry, the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So as we hand these out, we'll hand the, the body out first and, and that'll go throughout to everyone. Just as you're holding that element, I just want you to evaluate your own heart. Ask that God would show you areas in your life that are consuming too much of your heart and how you can offer that back to him. Christ gave his very life so that we might have life. Will we offer our life back to him? So let me pray for the bread and then the guys can hand that out. God, thank you for this act of, of communion. And I'm excited in a month's time to really explore this and ask why we do this. But God, here in these verses, I guess the simplest answer is because you said do this. And we want to take very seriously your commands to us. But so God, as we have the bread passed out to us and as we hold it in our hands, May we consider all these things that we've discussed today. May we, may we evaluate our own hearts and see where you want us to adjust. What focus needs to be changed? How do we need to refocus? God, we want to honor you above all. So help us do that now. Amen.
Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body. Eat this in remembrance of me. As we pass out the blood or the juice that represents the blood for us, God, would we remember that it was only in Jesus Christ's perfect blood that our sins would find any lasting, meaningful forgiveness. And so we are so thankful that Jesus went to the cross, that he showed the depth of his love for us. And God, I pray that in our own hearts, in our own minds now, we would remember that kind of sacrificial love and that we would love others in that same way. Not because we are capable of it, but because you have given us the Holy Spirit so that supernaturally we can give that same love that you have given us. God, we thank you for your blood shed for us. Amen. Presents the new covenant in Christ's blood. Let's drink in remembrance of him. God, as we finish up here this morning, as we head back to the next things that are on the agenda, whatever those things are, God, I pray that we would filter them all under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That we would live in a way that honors you and declares to this whole Bow Valley, Jesus is Lord. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you for all that you do in our lives. We love you. Be with us now. Amen. Thank you for joining us. It was our pleasure. I encourage you to come have some snacks uh, with us. And if you'd like to help out with soul food today, Ryan's at the back and, and would love some help with that. So just go and talk with him if you'd love to.